Hey there, I'm Matt Sewell, and this is the podcast about popes for people who like history but aren't so crazy about dry, dusty history books. This podcast will be a periodic look into the lives of one of the 264 men who have held or are currently holding the office of the Vicar of Christ, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Welcome to the Popecast, Episode 9. The guy we're covering this week was nothing short of a prophet. He called out society's future ills decades before they actually happened and reigned as Pope through the assassination of an American president, the sexual revolution, and a sweeping reform in the church. Plus, we picked him because, drumroll, he's about to be a saint. At Pope number 262, it's Blessed Paul VI. Giovanni Battista Montini was born in 1897 in the Lombardy region of Italy. He was ordained a priest at age 22, and just three years later was called into service for the Vatican Secretariat of State, the church's diplomatic arm. He'd work in Rome for the majority of his 30 years in service to that office, but for a short time early on, he was sent to Warsaw, Poland, to work in the office of Poland's papal nuncio, essentially the Pope's ambassador there. Montini eventually grew to become one of the closest advisors to Pope Pius XII, who was Pope from 1939 to 1958. Montini served under Pius prior to the latter's election. Then he became Pius's co-secretary of state in 1944, at the height of World War II. Fun fact, when Pius himself was involved in a clandestine plot to kill Hitler. Side note, no, I'm not kidding. And yes, you should read the book Church of Spies, but I digress. So leading up to and during the war, it was Montini who, at Pius's request, ran a special information office regarding prisoners of war and refugees. In the eight-year span, from 1939 to 1947, the office received almost 10 million requests for information and pushed out over 11 million replies. For his efforts, Montini was constantly attacked by Benito Mussolini's government and constantly defended by the Vatican. So 10 years later, Pius named Montini the Archbishop of Milan, the largest diocese in Italy. And four years after that, Pius's death gave way to the election of Angelo Roncalli, the man we know better now as St. John XXIII. John started passing out red hats soon after his election, and Montini was one of those made a cardinal in the first go-round. Rumor was that he'd been offered the promotion actually by Pius XII several years earlier, but out of humility, declined the office. Montini became very close to this pope as he had been to Pius XII. He served John XXIII faithfully as the latter convened the Second Vatican Council, but at one point reportedly didn't think it was the greatest idea, saying once about the pope, quote, This old boy does not know what a hornet's nest he is stirring up, end quote. But still, of course, Montini was faithful to the Holy Father's efforts and was a key player in the council's success leading the Central Preparatory Commission before the Council started, then moving into the Vatican during the Council and ultimately seeing the Council to its conclusion after John's untimely death from stomach cancer in 1963. So prior to John XXIII's death, it's thought that not only was Cardinal Montini seen as the most likely successor, but he was John's own choice for the man to follow him in the chair of Peter. That wish came to fruition in the conclave of 1963 when, on the sixth ballot, the Archbishop of Milan was elected as the 261st successor to St. Peter. He took the name Paul VI after St. Paul giving a nod to the missionary efforts of the great saint 
at a time when the church was badly in need of what we now refer to as the new evangelization. So right from the outset, Paul VI shirked many of the more formal trappings of the papacy. He was actually the last pope to receive a a formal coronation, and even that was substantially modified. The papal tiara, the thrice-crowned signature of the papal office for centuries, he donated to the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C., and he ceased usage of the sedia gestatoria, the chair upon which the pope was carried into and out of public events. He continued to replace these sorts of ceremonial functions throughout his papacy in an effort to better humanize the papacy, essentially, most of all which have endured to the present day. So throughout his reign, there were three other main things for which Paul VI has become known. First, he reconvened, of course, and closed the Second Vatican Council. Canon law requires that any ecumenical council, that is, a council of the whole church, of which there have only been 21 in the 2,000-year history of the Catholicism, be suspended upon the death of a pope. So after Paul VI was elected, he chose to see the work started by John XXIII through to its conclusion. With one of the four sessions of Vatican II under their belt, Paul oversaw the final three sessions in 1963, 64, and 65 when it finally concluded. Though he naturally oversaw the whole effort, of course, three actions in particular stand out during Vatican II. He created a permanent synod of bishops, basically an advisory body for the Pope, which continues to this day. He declared the Blessed Virgin Mary as Mother of the Church, a nod to Mary's presence at Pentecost, and, interestingly enough, a title just the other day Pope Francis recently doubled down on, making a special memorial for Mary under that title. And finally, Paul made a specific addition to Lumen Gentium, the council document in which the Church explained how she sees herself, essentially, on both the College of Bishops and a reiteration about the primacy of the Pope. This document in general, actually, was the one from the Council which Paul saw as the most vital, since it contained Paul's teaching on the universal call to holiness. So it's written in Lumen Gentium about this universal call, quote, All the faithful of Christ, of whatever rank or status, are called to the fullness of the Christian life and to the perfection of charity. By this holiness, as such, a more human manner of living is promoted in this earthly society, end quote. And just as a side note, this is especially important because at that time, it became widespread that really only priests or religious were called to be saints, were called to be holy. But Paul reiterated over and over again, especially in this special addition to Lumen Gentium, that it was the duty of every Christian, not just the religious or clergy, to become a saint. So second, Paul VI traveled far and wide earning the nickname the Pilgrim Pope and being the first pontiff to visit six continents. He visited the Holy Land in 1964, marking the first meeting between a pope and the Eastern Orthodox Patriarch of Constantinople for centuries. He was the first pope to visit the Western Hemisphere when he came to New York City in 1965 to address the United Nations. And that's in addition to visits to Uganda, Colombia, Portugal for the 50th anniversary of the Fatima apparitions and the Philippines among many others. And then lastly, the thing that he was known for, Paul VI was a writer and, as it turned out, a prophet. For his writings, Paul VI published seven encyclicals, which interestingly enough all only came in the first four years of his 15-year papacy. Three of the seven taught on the Blessed Mother, Mysterium Fide in 1965 was a teaching on the Eucharist, Populorum Progressio in 1967 exhorted governments to ensure that they served all people, and not just a select few. 
Sacer Dotalis Chalibus, also in 1967, doubled down on the church's commitment to priestly celibacy at a time when it was under attack. And then finally, of course, Humanae Vitae, in 1968, Paul's masterpiece, addressed the value of human life, the nature of marriage, and included prophetic teachings on what would happen if the wider world accepted the use of artificial contraception. So more on that in a minute. Paul VI reigned as Pope until 1978, finishing up a decades-long effort to reform the Mass in 1969 and the Church calendar in 1970. Notably, he elevated Carol Wojtyła, the future St. John Paul II, to Cardinal in 1967, and Joseph Ratzinger, currently Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, to Cardinal in 1977. Paul grew ill in the summer of 1978 and died on August 6th in Castel Gandolfo, the papal summer residence. He's buried beneath St. Peter's Basilica. Paul's confessor, Jesuit father Paolo Dezza, called Paul, quote, a man of great joy, and wrote, quote, if Paul VI was not a saint when he was elected pope, he became one during his pontificate. I was able to witness not only with what energy and dedication he toiled for Christ and the church, but also and above all how much he suffered for Christ and the church. I always admired not only his deep inner resignation, but also his constant abandonment to divine providence. Pope Paul VI's legacy is a rich one. Not only was he hailed as a saint virtually from the moment of his death, but time, as I mentioned a minute ago, has shown him to be a great prophet. His encyclical Humanae Vitae came at a time when the whole religious world was calling on the Catholic Church to rubber stamp artificial birth control as acceptable. John XXIII had convened a commission of individuals from all corners of the world and all sorts of professional backgrounds, doctors, married couples, clergy, laypeople, with the express purpose of investigating the issue and making a recommendation to the pontiff. The commission, to keep a long story short, ultimately advised Paul VI that the church should indeed endorse the use of artificial birth control. So the commission said, yes, church, you should approve this. Paul took it under advisement, but it turned out he had other plans. The fruit of his thought was Humanae Vitae, and in that document, the short 31-paragraph encyclical, Paul gave his reasons why the church would, in fact, not be approving of its use. After addressing the issue of population growth around the world, speaking on the nature of marital love and explaining the commission's origins and purpose, Paul pulled precisely zero punches in spelling out exactly what would happen if the world continued on its present path of allowing the use of artificial contraception. And that brings us to today's quote as we wrap up this week's PopeCast. I'll paste the link to the whole document in the show notes, but here I'm going to read paragraph 17 in its fullness since it's so dang good. So paragraph 17 of Humanae Vitae. Responsible men can become more deeply convinced of the truth of the doctrine laid down by the church on this issue if they reflect on the consequences of methods and plans for artificial birth control. Let them first consider how easily this course of action could open wide the way for marital infidelity and a general lowering of moral standards. Not much experience is needed to be fully aware of human weakness and to understand that human beings— and especially the young, who are so exposed to temptation, need incentives to keep the moral law. And it is an evil thing to make it easy for them to break that law. Another effect that gives cause for alarm is that a man who grows accustomed to the use of contraceptive methods may forget the reverence due to a woman, and disregarding her physical and emotional equilibrium, reduce her to being a mere instrument for the satisfaction of his own desires." 
no longer considering her as his partner, whom he should surround with care and affection. Finally, careful consideration should be given to the danger of this power passing into the hands of those public authorities who care little for the precepts of the moral law. Who will blame a government which, in its attempt to resolve the problems affecting an entire country, resorts to the same measures as are regarded as lawful by married people in the solution of a particular family difficulty? Who will prevent public authorities from favoring those contraceptive methods which they consider more effective? Should they regard this as necessary, they may even impose their use on everyone. It could well happen, therefore, that when people, either individually or in family or social life, experience the inherent difficulties of the divine law and are determined to avoid them, they may give into the hands of public authorities the power to intervene in the most personal and intimate responsibility of husband and wife. Consequently, unless we are willing that the responsibility of procreating life should be left to the arbitrary decision of men, we must accept that there are certain limits beyond which it is wrong to go to the power of man over his own body and its natural functions. Limits, let it be said, which no one, whether as a private individual or as a public authority, can lawfully exceed. These limits are expressly imposed because of the reverence due to the whole human organism and its natural functions. End quote. Sound familiar? Sounds something like what's uh, transpired over the last several decades. Anyway, that's it for this week. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you're listening to this. Your review will, of course, read it on the air. But if you provide feedback on what you think, the more you rate, the more likely it's seen and listened to by others. And the better feedback I get, the better the podcast can become. Also, please consider joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash matsool. That patronage, even at a buck per episode, gets you some sweet patron-only content and will allow me to continue devoting time to producing these great bios on the Popes. So that's patreon.com slash M-A-T-T-S-E-W-E-L-L. That's patreon.com slash matsool. As we exit this week, we ask as we do every time the Pope cast features a saintly, or in this case, an almost saintly Pope, blessed Pope Paul VI, pray for us. Until next time.